Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be in your presence. Also thankful for each other. And what a gift it is to journey together in faith to please you and to know you, to love you. This morning we're asking that you would, in a fresh way, have mercy on us. Grant us grace to hear and hearts made alive by your Holy Spirit so that we can respond to you. I pray for all who are here today, Lord, regardless of how far along they are in their journey. Draw us all closer to your dear Son today for his glory and for our good. And draw us closer to each other as we worship and fellowship together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are beginning a series today we're calling The King's Cross. And uh, that title, I must admit, we've stolen from a book written by Tim Keller by that title, King's Cross. And uh, we're actually taking seven snapshots from the book of Mark that will uh, give us insights to Jesus, his life, his ministry, his teaching, and the direction of his life toward the cross. Uh, It's not exactly like we're following this book, but if you want to pick up a copy, it would encourage you, as we're all going to be looking at this as we're preparing this ministry series. So Mark was actually a secretary, probably for Peter. And he gathered a lot of his insights from all of his time with Peter. And everybody was so anxious that Peter, who did all this teaching and ministering in the church, would get these things written down so that others could know about Christ and what he meant and who he was. And I want to say that as we look into this, you know, I think everybody kind of loves a mystery, loves a little bit of who done it, how's it going to turn out, what's going to happen in the end. I actually took the snapshot to find out what the 10 most significant historic mysteries are supposed to be. It's a little disappointing, actually. Turns out number four on the mystery list is Jack the Ripper, who killed five or more women in London in 1888, and it was never discovered who he was, terrorized the city, and actually undermined their confidence in even who they were as a society. But actually, did it affect that many people? Number three was a little more interesting, as mysteries go. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And historians are trying to figure out, was it even true? Did it really happen? Those of us that know that God has revealed in his word how much it played a part in the history of Israel know it happened. But everybody asks the question, and where is it? What happened to it? It's one of those mysteries. Number two was King Arthur. Again, another Englishman comes into the story. And King Arthur, uh, who lived uh, almost a thousand years ago, theoretically, isn't even known to be a historical character or a fictional character. And so there's great debate. Did he really live or is it a personification of some other people? So this is our number two mystery, King Arthur. Now we're down to number one. And I've got to tell you, this one disappointed me as well. The number one supposed uh, ancient mystery of all time is the lost island of Atlantis. Is that as good as they can do? You know, they're not even sure. In fact, there's a lot of people that think that also is just a myth. That basically Plato made that up to try to bring in some different characteristics and things for his time. And so I'm saying, is that the best the world has of mysteries? Because I want to tell you this morning about a mystery. A mystery that Paul spoke about. A mystery that has at its heart the person and work of God. And a mystery that includes each and every one of us in what God is doing. So please get your Bibles open to the book of Mark. 
We want to see what happens here. And uh, in essence, we want to see how this ancient story, uh, historic story, unfolds. And how God unwraps this a layer at a time. We'll start in verse 1, chapter 1. Mark is written very succinctly. No wasting of words here. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So right out of the chute, Mark starts by saying, I'm going to tell you the beginning. I'm going to tell you where this story starts. We're going to start right at the most important part. And this story is the story we're going to call the gospel. Which means good news. There's something unfolding that is good news. Some would say, many would say, we should say, great news. But it's not just a fable or a myth or something made up. It's the great news about a person. Jesus Christ. And Mark who was there with all those witnesses and working as Peter's secretary, Peter who had spent so much time with Christ, wanted us to know about this person, Jesus Christ. And by the way, this Jesus Christ, which Christ meant the the Messiah, the sent one, the anointed one, the one who would be not just a king, but the king of kings. That's who Jesus Christ is, the one that the Jews were looking for. That's who this man Jesus was. He was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And by the way, he was the Son of God. Without any doubt, Mark wants us to know in his first sentence, I'm talking about Jesus the man who was and is God. Deity. Not just a a noble person, not just someone who has all these extra character traits of being a good teacher and being humble and being a servant. No, we're talking about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords here. And we're going to get into this mystery from the beginning with Mark. And so then he goes on to say, uh, because he knew his audience and the people that he was wanting to talk to, some of which who wouldn't have been Jewish necessarily, so he wants to help them with that background. But he wants to get into the fact that this story ties into the story of the nation of Israel. And so in his second sentence, he begins in, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, guess what? He's jumping back 700 years in the life of the nation of Israel when he starts saying what Isaiah wrote. And so he's writing to people that are trying to figure out who Jesus is and how that plays together. And he said, you know, this is really going back now 700 years in our history to this prophet. We know he was our greatest prophet. We know that God used him and he spoke so elegantly and so wisely revealing God's plans for us. But this man pointed to this Jesus. That's something you need to understand. Now, if you were living in the time when Mark was writing this, apart from what Jesus did, there had been silence in the nation of Israel for about 500 years. Now, how patient are we as Americans? I mean, you know what? 500 years predates us by about times two, how long our country has even existed. And so people in the nation of Israel have been waiting and waiting and waiting. And they had not heard anything for 500 years. Now he's saying, you remember 700 years ago when Isaiah said this would happen? In our lifetime, it's happening. The story that was hidden and mysterious and had gone quiet is now coming back to life in the person of Jesus. That's the kind of thing that Mark wants them to understand. You know, I picture this a little bit like, say, an acorn seed. 
And you might in your family take an acorn and go out and have some place in your garden. You think, we want to plant this acorn. We're hoping for a tree to grow. And you plant that acorn seed. And if you have children especially, you're going to run back and check that thing pretty often. Sometimes maybe six or seven times in a day. Waiting for something to happen and nothing happens. And then maybe weeks go by. And then it's a little less frequent going back there to check. And then maybe a month and nothing happens. And then maybe the whole summer season goes and nothing happened. And who's checking that seed? It was kind of like that for Israel. They had these promises from God from thousands of years before in the life of Abraham. And there were people that were still waiting. When Jesus was born, there were a few people waiting to see if the mystery was going to come back to life. Was this ancient story going to produce fruit? And uh, there were a few people waiting at the temple, you remember, when Jesus was taken there as a baby. But most people had quit looking to see if the story was coming back to life. Most people got to the place where they thought, you know what? Nothing's happening there. And there's a parallel in our day. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. 2,000 years since he did his miracles and did his teaching and gave his life on that cross and was buried and rose again. And so people today are saying, where's the seed? Where's the movement in this story? What is God doing? And of course... In some ways, we are what God is doing. Those of us that he's calling to life in Christ, as are the people in China and India and Africa and South America, who Jesus is moving by his spirit among even as we speak and sit here. But it's understandable why sometimes we say, have we really heard anything from God in a long, long time? Has the story grown cold? Well, let's look at verse 4 and 5. Mark writes, And so John came, baptizing in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Again, Mark, so few words, he says so much here. He's pointing out to us that there is this pathway of preparation. And John the Baptist, who had been prophesied about 700 years earlier, is fulfilling that prophecy. He's calling people to come and to prepare their hearts for the coming of Christ. Guess what, gang? There's something for us to learn here this morning. Because John was calling them to come and to confess their sins and to repent. Repent means, instead of going this way and pursuing things that are against the kingdom of God and against the things that God has outlined for me, and instead of trying to be self-made and self-fulfilled, I'm going to turn and go this way. I'm going God's way. I'm going the way where God is the center instead of I'm the center. And so John was calling them to confession and repentance. And guess what? In the Lenten season... We're calling you guys. We're calling me. We're calling the staff to repentance and confession. It's an appropriate season. The church fathers recognized probably 1,800, 1,700 years ago that this was a good thing for us too. It's not a matter of working out our faith and somehow earning points with God. It's a matter of acknowledging that for us to prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection and to experience afresh the love of Christ in our hearts. That we should go through seasons where we also confess and repent. And so that fits with what we're doing in our Wednesday night series. What's the stuff of Lent? Where we want to look at repentance and confession and brokenness and forgiveness and restoration and mourning. And how all these pieces fit together for us as we're looking towards Easter. 
that incredible celebration of what changed the world. We want to prepare our hearts for that. And it was right, and John helped the Israelis to do that in his day. Interesting because, again, in the mystery of how this is written, John the Baptist kind of plays the role of taking Israel into a new exodus. You know, in the original exodus, they got to escape slavery. They got saved out of Egypt. It was a picture of what was going to be done in Christ. And now John the Baptist is taking them again into the wilderness and preparing them to go and cross the Jordan. And that's what he was doing with getting them to confess and repent and reflect on God's promises and then to be identified with the purposes of God in their baptism. And so he was journeying something that they had journeyed as a nation many, many years before that time. It's a remarkable story here. That exodus had happened 1,400 years before John. And yet he's reliving it in some ways with them at that time. So let's look at the next few verses here as we see this journey continuing. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so this is really a, a wonderful thing. I don't know if you've ever tried to envision John the Baptist. I mean, the kind of character that he was, how he dressed, how he lived. You know, he's wearing this clothing made of camel's hair, a leather belt strapped around him. He ate locusts and honey. He was a wild man. And he was out in the wilderness. And they would probably make a movie about him if he was around today. And you think what it was to call all these people to repentance. In fact, he also spoke boldly against the political leaders in his time and against anybody standing against the kingdom of God. And you know what? He didn't have a PA system. So he had to gather those people out there in the wilderness and speak with what I think was probably a booming voice and call those people to faith. And people were making a pretty big deal out of John the Baptist. He had disciples. He had people that came and followed after him. And really found him fascinating and found his message hopeful. But they were also tempted to think John the Baptist was the one. They were tempted to make so much of John the Baptist that they would think, I'm okay because I'm close to John the Baptist. I know John the Baptist. I listen to John the Baptist. I do what John the Baptist says. Everything's going to be good because I'm in tight with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who Jesus described as sort of the best thing that ever came from the body of a woman. That's what he said. He said, no one's like John. John is a super guy. But in the kingdom of God, the least will be greater than John the Baptist, he said. And then John the Baptist, who was this great man, points to what? Basically, his whole message is, listen, I'm calling you to another one. I'm not the one. Don't follow me. Don't think I can save you. Don't think I can make a difference for your eternity or even for today. I'm preparing the way for one who is coming who can give you the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? That means he can take your dead soul and make you alive again. He could take the separation that you've experienced from God and unite you with God again. That's the one I'm talking about. That's the one I'm preparing the way for. Don't look at me. Look to him. This was not a false humility. It was not just part of John's act to think, well, I better not get my head too big here. I better play this right so that people keep following me. No, it was a genuine understanding on John's part that he couldn't help these people. 
All these people were gathering. He couldn't save them. He couldn't save them spiritually. He couldn't save them from the Romans. What could he do? He could point them to the Savior, to Jesus Christ, and to prepare the way for him. And that's exactly what he did. That's also, of course, what we're supposed to do. Not have this confidence in a man. You know, our culture is so personality-driven, isn't it? We all have our superstars, whether it's in uh, our athletic realms or in our entertainment realms, in our business realms. We all have people that we want to know about and think about and aspire to be like. It's just the way we do things. And TV and our computers and all the ways we can advertise and market make it even worse, it seems. And that stuff comes spilling into our church as well. And it's easy for us to be caught up into, well, whose are you following? Whose tapes are you listening to these days? And whose books are you reading? And which pastor or preacher do you think really is the one? And John has a word for us. It's none of us men looking in the wrong place. It is Jesus Christ. But don't worry, he's up to the task. He's worthy of our praise and worship. And he can deliver what no one else can deliver. That's what's at the heart of this message from John the Baptist. We must center our lives and our hope and our church in the person of Christ and in the work of Christ. And I've got good news for you. When we do and as we do, the riches of the grace of God and the mercy of God flow through to us. And it's what we were designed to do and to be. So Mark is laying this message out. And then he goes on to talk about what happened with John the Baptist and Jesus. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son. Whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. So now we get Jesus into John's story. Uh, it's very interesting this baptism story, and how, again, with few words, Mark, who's already taken them back to Isaiah and the 700 years of their history with Israel and actually back to the Exodus, which is 1,400 years, now he's going to go all the way back in this mysterious story to the creation encounter because he's painting this picture of Jesus' baptism as a direct reminder of God's involvement at creation. Who are the players at the baptism of Jesus? Obviously, we know John the Baptist is there, bewildered, really, that he has any part to play. But God the Father is there, speaking of his love for the Son. Jesus, the Word of God, is there. And obviously it's going to be his obedience and his actions that bring life from death to life. That's that seed that was buried instead. And of course it's going to be buried at the crucifixion and come to life. And all that is portrayed here in this baptism of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is there. And the Holy Spirit is pictured in this passage like a dove. Like the dove and the Spirit when it moved across the waters before the world was created. So, you know, we talk about uh, being Trinitarian. And sometimes that's just like a little mind puzzle. 
Okay, God in three persons, one in three persons. How does that work again? The math is hard, isn't it? But we miss sometimes the most important things because we try to sort out things that only can be known fully by God himself. One thing we see in this picture of the Trinity here at Jesus' baptism is that Jesus forever existed in a community of love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is really important for us. Because we have to understand, if we want to know who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus is trying to restore us to, that thing that Adam and Eve lost for us of having fellowship with God and being in the presence of God and having God walk with us, what was that? Well, what that was was this eternal package of a community of lovers. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So full of admiration for each other. So full of respect and appreciation. So desirous to exalt each other. And that's who they are. And that's what they do. And that's what they're still doing. And we are invited into that fellowship. We're invited to have the Holy Spirit live in us. We're invited to have Jesus as our Savior to live in us. We're invited... To have God the Father say, because you've received the gift of my son's forgiveness for your sins. Just as I have loved my son, I love you. You can call me Father. Because that's who I am in Christ to you. And you, so, you have to understand, we're not invited to a bunch of rules. We're not invited to a program. We're not invited to get into a church process. We're invited to be reunited with the living God who lives in community. And wants us to be in the middle of that loving relationship. And that, friends, is a really big deal. Really important we understand. This mystery that's been hidden, that's being revealed, is what Satan broke and stole. Jesus wants to restore for you and me. And he wants you in on the act. He wants you to join back in to that rich and deep and wonderful fellowship that happens at all times in the Trinity. Well... Then we see after Jesus is baptized uh, to begin this whole restoration of what Satan has taken away. You know, Satan convinced Adam and Eve in the garden, you don't really need God, do you? I mean, honestly, can't you kind of take control of life yourself and make the most of your life? And wouldn't that be maybe even better? I mean, if you eat of that fruit, you'll actually become like God. In which case, what need would you have for God? And Jesus came back because we who are created in the image of God have a desperate, desperate need for God. There's no place you can go. There's no place you can try to find satisfaction apart from God. That's just who we are and what we need to do. So then after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Holy Spirit out to be tempted. We talked about this Wednesday night. And it was a wonderful thing to realize it wasn't because of Jesus' being tired or weak or something that he was tempted. He was full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit in order to engage the battle that he came here to engage with Satan. And we see that same thing here in Mark when we find that Jesus was taken out. Again, it's very interesting. He was in a desert 40 days, which again, we have our 40 days of Lent because of that. Because of this battle, Jesus fought with Satan in that time. And it also says he was with the wild animals. And the angels attended him. Which again gives us a little picture of the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve were with the wild animals when Satan was tempting them. And so we see that picture drawn back together again. But I want to tell you something, church. The battle is on. 
There is a battle, a spiritual battle. Satan wants to corrupt us. He wants to keep people from learning that this mystery is true. He wants to keep those of us who know Christ so distracted that we are not engaged in that rich fellowship with him and with each other that is life-giving and producing fruit so that others are hearing this good news. That's what Satan wants for us. He's trying to convince us again. Oh, probably not. Jesus probably is going to make your life too hard. You better take care of yourself. Don't trust Jesus to take care of you. You better take matters into your own hands. Don't trust that obeying God is going to lead to a really abundant life. Instead, you better make it work yourself. Those are the kind of things Satan is whispering all the time because he is so anxious to break us apart from that relationship with God. And so we should be aware. We should be sensitive. We should be tuned in. We should not be um, numb to the reality of that spiritual warfare as he used those same tactics on us. Satan declares that Jesus is not trustworthy. He's not trustworthy of our ultimate commitment. He's not trustworthy for us to say, Jesus, here is my life. We sang those songs about saying, God, I just want to be saying yes to you. And yet Satan says, that's not a good idea. You do that, you lose control of your life, you're liable to be a loser in the end. You better take care of yourself. You better watch out for yourself. Don't trust anybody else and don't trust God. By the way, who's heard from him lately anyway? Have you? That's the kind of stuff Satan whispers. And this ancient story, folks, this mystery, which is coming true, we're reminded to say, hey, I'm buying into that. I'm believing that. As for me and my family, that's what we want to do and to be. 4,000 years ago, God made promises to Abraham that included that he would bless all the nations through him. He's keeping that promise, by the way. 3,500 years ago, God made promises to Moses and Joshua and said that he would take that nation out of slavery and out of bondage and deliver them to the promised land. And you know what? He did keep that promise. 3,000 years ago, God promised King David, there's going to be an heir on your throne who's going to rule forever and ever and ever. God's keeping that promise too. Where's Jesus today? The man Jesus who is also deity and God, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he said, you know what? It is finished. He's back in the saddle, we might say. There's more to come in terms of how he plans to deliver this whole creation from its bondage. But make no mistake, Jesus is king. Not will be king, he is king. Just like they promised to David. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said at the end. And church, that's my question to you. Do you believe when Jesus said that he can give you life and life everlasting? Do you believe it this morning? Do you? Let's then find if we can live like that. You see, this is our chapter in history. This ancient story that started with creation is still a work in play. And we now get to write our chapters and live our chapters and our reality in that story. That's why in this particular time in our church's life, we're making a special point to say this Lenten season, let this be a time when we let God call our hearts back together. As Pastor Barry mentioned, we know that we've had struggles and trips in our transition and it's not been an easy time 
We know what Satan wants for this church. He wants to snuff out our light. He does not want people to hear the gospel in this place. He doesn't want you bringing somebody here this Easter to learn this magnificent truth of who Jesus is and what he did and the gift he has to give them. He wants you discouraged. And we're saying, let's get together. Let's meet these Wednesday nights and seek God with all of our hearts. Let's hear what God wants to teach us, not to blame somebody, not to condemn anybody, but just to hear from God in a fresh way. And let's say, yes, I'm in. I want to double down. You know what it means to double down? It means to say, I made a bet, and I won. And I bet on Jesus. But now I'm getting a little bit concerned. There's some risks involved. It's not as convenient. It's more confusing, more difficult. I'm telling you, church, it's our time. It's our opportunity to double down. Not just on a man, not on John the Baptist or anybody else, but on Jesus Christ himself here at Christ Church. It's our chance. It's our season. We're, um, besides this special 24-7 prayer time in our Lenten series, uh, we've actually got some folks, uh, you know, I work with some younger staff, one of the pleasures here. They try to keep me on the younger side of things. And they were coming up with some enthusiastic ideas, and I tried to harness that. And in the end, we came up with 40 up. And 40 is the 40 days of Lent. And we're saying, let's up our game. Let's up our availability to God. Let's up our listening during these 40 days and see what God will do. And it includes all these things like our Lenten series, our Easter series, including the idea that, you know what, think about who you should be ministering to now and thinking about who you're going to invite here to hear the gospel during this Easter season. 40 up, 40 days of getting serious with God. Will you repent and confess? Will you ask God to reignite your first love for Jesus? Will you ask God for the gift of salvation? Some of you might be here this morning. You've never received that gift from Jesus. Today could be the day. Will you cry out to God to help our church get through this time of transition? Not just for our comfort, but for his glory. I don't do many altar calls, and I don't like to motivate people or manipulate people artificially. But I'm encouraging you today. We're going to have a chance for people to come and pray. And if you say, you know what, I want to seek God in a fresh way. I want to hear from God some fresh things for myself and my family and my church. Then you come. Come and pray. We'll have people here that can pray with you, but if you just want to pray alone, that's great. But seek God with all of your heart. Let us together, in essence, say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Let's pray. Father, this ancient mystery... What you've been doing since before the foundations of the world you planned to do. And now you're completing it in the work of Jesus. And Lord, we're your church. And we want to be found faithful at this moment in your story. So would you help us by your spirit. Father, uh, help us to see what we need to repent of and confess. All the ways we get so distracted. All the ways we make things about us. Forgive us. And would you call us afresh to that dance that happens in the Trinity, that incredible, unexpressible love that passes between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that you are offering to us in Jesus. May we refresh in our commitment to walk in that love by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.